So last week we looked at uh, the beginning of this prayer, which starts with our Father in heaven. Andrew unpacked for us so well this beautiful beginning of the prayer that says we start with the knowledge that we are speaking to our Heavenly Father. And that is a beautiful picture. If you're not a Christian or you're unfamiliar with that, it's the idea that the Father is the perfect Father. The perfect Father that each one of our hearts is longing for. And the best picture we have in the Bible is one of where the, fa- the story of the two sons, where the father runs out to meet his wayward son. And that is the posture of the father towards us as we come into prayer. And today I want to look at the next part of that prayer, four simple words, hallowed be your name. Rolls off the tongue. It sounds so innocuous. And I think many of us have not really thought very hard about what it means. I want to show you that really this is Christ's call to worship. I want to show you the centrality of worship in the Christian life. I want to expand our vision, really, of the the magnitude of worship, what it really means, that it's much, much more than just singing on a Sunday. I want to suggest to you that it is the the very essence of the Christian life. Um, I want to read to you from Matthew chapter 6. We'll start... Uh, from the kind of preamble, verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their rewards. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. So this, these four words then, this second clause, hallowed be your name. It sounds kind of meaningless. It rolls off the tongue. In fact, if anything, you might, you might say, our Father in heaven. And then you just quickly, it's just kind of almost automatic. I don't know about you. I, when I went to school, uh, we said it almost every day. And you can just imagine the, the, the room full of school children and kind of saying it in a minute, our Father in heaven, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. The, 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 the whole prayer has been robbed of any significance, any power by, by just because you've heard it so many times. You need to almost get rid of all of what you've heard before and start again. And just imagine the picture that Christ is painting for us here. It speaks of a man, perhaps a, a busy, you can imagine a busy Middle Eastern scene, bustling highway. He says, go in your, on your own. Shut the door. The door, you can, all the outside influences are closed. And then you can imagine he goes and kneels down. I won't try and literally kneel down as I speak to you. It might get a bit more bit tricky. It goes down and kneels down. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. 
A sense to which I think half, half the problem with understanding these verses is they're using words we don't really use every day. None of you talk about hallowing very often. To hallow is to venerate, to glorify, to lift up, to say holy. What does holy mean? It means to be set apart, to be magnificent, to be glorious. And then we think about the word name. Name is not just a word used to describe God. The name is talking about, the name of God is Everything that is significant about him, his identity, his character, his very being. So when he says, holy is your your name, it's kind of like the equivalent of saying, you are magnificent. You are incredible. And she goes further than that. It's a bit of a petition that others may see. It's almost like, you are incredible. May everyone see it. You've got to hear the delight in the voice as he says it. Hallowed be your name. You've got to hear the awe hallowed be your majestic name. It's a window into worship. And right up front, I want to suggest to you that, that really the very essence of the Christian life, if you're looking in and you're thinking, what is Christianity all about? I think you cannot go wrong by seeing worship as the central defining feature of the Christian life. It'd be easy to think about it through the lens of different aspects. What is, what, is, what is distinct about Christianity? And you might immediately think it's about rituals or traditions, but any kind of ritual in the life of the church, anything that has any significance, whether it be, I don't know, kneeling down in prayer or taking communion or, or any other kind of, you'll probably be familiar with all sorts of other rituals, that only makes sense when you think about them as a, a vehicle, a way of expressing this idea of worship. If they don't express that, then they're just kind of irrelevant. They're meaningless. Or you might think of the Christian life defined by a set of ethical principles. You think Christians in our culture look different in all sorts of ways, whether it be the way they treat their bodies or the way they think about sex or relationships or uh, what the words that come out of their mouths, all sorts of different um, ethical differences that if you're not a Christian, you're looking in at Christianity, you may well say those, that seems to be the obvious thing that's different about Christianity. Again, none of those things mean anything unless they're done as an act of worship. You know, Jesus is speaking um, in Matthew chapter 7, a little short while after this passage, and, and he describes people who will come to him and say, look, we do all sorts of things in your name. He says, on, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness." Saying that these people who might claim to have done certain things in my name, you might tick off all sorts of different spiritual accomplishments, but unless you have a love for Christ, unless you are a worshipper, it's all irrelevant. This is getting to the very heart of what it means to be a follower of Christ. The problem is when I talk about worship, I think we have a very thin understanding. You know that we have corporate worship on a Sunday. So when, you, when I think about work, when I say worship, you're thinking, well, he's kind of talking about singing. And I can do singing. You know, I can turn up on a Sunday and raise my voice together. I can, I can do worship. What you've got to see is that is such a small vision of what worship is. In fact, Jesus is not talking about corporate worship here. He's talking about secret worship, private worship. The worship that comes out of an individual's heart. And this, this sense of individual devotion, this sense of worship of Christ, this affection for him, this is the beating heart of the Christian life. Get this, I think you can get everything else. Don't get this and you've got nothing. 
I'm not going to do the quote justice, but there's a guy, Augustine, says something like, the rule of the Christian life is love Christ and then you can do what you want. And there's a sense to which, get this right, understand what it means to worship Christ and you've got everything and I can tell you, then we can, I kind of say, best of luck to you, <laughs> be on your way. But get this wrong and, and I, 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 don't, I would suggest you're not even a Christian, really. Actually, what, we wanted, what I think Christ will do for us as we look at these four words, hallowed be your name, is he, he will explore, expand our understanding of worship to see that at the very heart of worship is individual devotion, is personal consecration, personal holiness, and the third thing is a passion for the fame and glory of Christ. So we'll take each one of these in turn. The first then, the call to personal devotion. You remember we established this uh, series, Andrew described it as friendship with God. And Jesus is saying right at the heart of friendship with God, right at the heart of a genuine relationship with God, is a posture of personal worship. The key question of the Christian life is when no one else is looking, will you worship Christ? Will you worship Christ when no one is looking? See how Christ is... So much of spirituality, so much of genuine relationship with God is actually about what's done in secret. You see that just after this passage, Jesus goes on to talk about fasting. And he talks about the, the danger of fasting for appearances. I guess probably not many of you fast for appearances, more's the pity. Um, but he says, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. He's saying, look, there's a real danger of what I think I described a couple of weeks ago as performative spirituality, whether it be fasting or giving. Jesus said, don't let your right hand see what your left hand gives. And of course, he's using hyperbole. But again, he's saying, don't give their appearances. Don't give that other people will look at you and think that is a generous person. And here too, he's saying the true test of worship is whether when you're on your own, when no one else is around, when, the mu- when there's no music to lift your spirits, no one of the worship leaders to lead you towards the living God in worship, where is your heart? Can you say with Christ in this moment, hallowed be your name? Is there an affection for Christ in you? Is there a devotion towards him? How does your heart respond when you hear his name? If there's nothing, if you're just cold, I might suggest that's a little bit of a problem. Is there delight in you? Is there an affection in you towards him when you hear him, his name? There's a great um, moment in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where when, um, it's described the moment when the children, remember there's four children in the family, who, who hear about Aslan's name. And they haven't even met him, but it describes how they have a reaction inside themselves when they hear it. It says, at the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in its inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it is the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. What is your heart level reaction to Christ? 
Is your heart warmed, as John Wesley described it? Are you, is there some sense in you that goes, yes, I want you, I, I desire you, I, I have some kind of affection towards you? Because when you worship something, when you have a love towards someone, there should be some kind of active response in us. They occupy some part of your heart and mind. You feel something towards them. The problem is I feel like this sense of devotion towards Christ is an alien concept to many of us. We think of devotion to Christ maybe as going to church on Sundays and keeping some rough, approximate sense of obedience to Christ, of doing, you know, not avoiding the big sins, you know, the, kind of, the ones that everyone knows about. And you think, yeah, I'm, kind of, I'm, I'm doing devotion. What you've got to see is Christ wants so much more than that, brothers and sisters. Christ wants your heart. He wants your affection. He wants your love. Think about the word devotion. Think of us if you meet someone who's devoted to their football club. They are, they're, they are they're obsessed sometimes. They're, they're thinking about it all the way through the week. They're, they're giving attention on the weekend when they watch the game. There's, there's a sense of, this has captured me. I am attracted towards this. Or a devoted spouse. Think about the way that kind of sense of devotion towards your spouse might engender all sorts of active responses. This sense of worship, this sense of affection, this sense of devotion is anything but passive. And I think the, the problem is that for many of us, it is passive. Uh, the writer A.W. Tozer said, if you have never known wonder or ecstasy in your soul because of the crucifixion or resurrection, your claim to Christianity is unfounded. Those are sobering words. He says, if you have never felt wonder, the idea that Christ would be willing to die for you, you've never felt ecstasy, never felt joy at the idea that Christ has won your life for him on the cross, that he's forgiven you, that he's triumphed over death and he's been resurrected. If that hasn't ever warmed your heart, if that's never brought joy to you, say, actually, question whether or not you're a Christian. You could be a churchgoer. I met a guy recently who had been going to church for a number of years and has had some kind of vague familiarity with the Christian faith. But then he came through a period of great anxiety. And uh, he really, in his moment of deepest desperation in that anxiety, essentially called out to God and said, I choose to trust you. And really, honestly, he's been transformed as a person. It was that moment that he really placed his faith in Christ. And he's a different man today. He's full of joy and enthusiasm and affection for Christ. And now, now that he knows what real affection looks like, now he's captivated by Christ. He looks back and says, actually, I never really, I never really felt that. Christ was some peripheral um, star on the edge of my life. It was no, he was no, I had no relationship with him. I had no desire for him, no affection. I was never really following him. It's only now that he has affection, that he can see what it really means. Those words wonder, those words ecstasy, I wonder if you really, those are words that you can associate with your faith in Christ. If you can't, then maybe you need to ask yourself if that's well, whether A, whether you're a Christian, but B, we should associate these words. Why, why is this? Well, one of the reasons, I think, is because our hearts are filled with all sorts of minor concerns. Uh, the writer John Piper said, if, if we don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it is not because we have drunk deeply and been satisfied. It is because we've nibbled long at the table of the world. Our soul is stuffed full of small things and there is no room for the great. 
How many of you can relate to that? I certainly could when I read that, that sense to which my heart is full of worries and concerns and messages and screens and ideas and I'm just kind of cramming myself full of all sorts of things but I'm not really building a hunger for the one who will satisfy my deepest longings. So as a result, when I take away all the peripheral influences, when I take away the church and I'm just me in my room on my own, as I started to reflect on this passage earlier at the beginning of the week, I recognized that actually I couldn't really say with all part of my being, hallowed be your name. I worship you. I love you. I have affection for you. I could see worries in my heart. I could see idolatrous desires, things that I was consumed by, or just grumblings, discontent. And actually, that's not even, those are, in a sense, just warning signs, just a sign that there's something wrong. They're not even the problem. Before we get to the problem, before I think what, it really, what you've got to see here is that Christ's call to worship in, this, in this, this invitation that Christ makes right at the beginning of the prayer, which I think just shows you the significance of what it is, of how, of how important Christ rates it, this is deeply alien to the world. It runs against our deepest instincts. I think you see this in a few ways. One is worship requires us to take our eyes off ourselves. But we live in a world that has just put great emphasis on the self as it's removed God from the horizon, as God is absent from the grand narrative of our lives in our culture, the emphasis is on you. On if you're feeling sad, build your self-esteem. You've got to invest in some self-love. You've got to have some self-care, self. If you, um, you know, self-promotion, the sense to which if I've got something, if there's something wrong in my life, I've got to look inwards. I've got to look internally. The self is the great obsession if, I, if, this, if we were to think, what is the equivalent of this prayer for our culture? It wouldn't be, hallowed be your name. It would be, hallowed be my name. But it wouldn't be that, that we wouldn't be saying that in one voice. One of you would be saying, hallowed be my name. Another one, hallowed be my name. Hallowed be my name. The sense to which a cacophony of different voices all shouting, hallowed be my name. That is the, the great anthem of our culture, isn't it? The great sense to which there's so often the individuals driving towards it, uh, building a name for myself. That is the anthem that we've grown up in. And we know surprise then that we take that same self-obsession, that same emphasis on building a name for ourselves. It just becomes part of the water that we swim in. This, Jesus stops us in our tracks and says, no, you need to take your eyes off yourself for a moment and look at me. I'm far more glorious and captivating. Come and say with me, hallowed be your name. That's the first thing. Second thing, worship is fundamentally unproductive. We live in a culture that puts a huge emphasis on productivity, on outcomes, on deliverables, on measuring your performance, whether it be your personal best in your, what you're lifting or what you're running. Or I literally have very little familiarity with any kind of athletics, or, or so I'll just let you fill that in. Or work-based, you know, my outcomes, what, are, what am I producing? But worship is, runs completely against that. It has no, there's no deliverable, there's no outcome, hearts given over to the Lord per minute. There's no, there's no, there's no nothing, you're making nothing. In fact, this isn't this exactly what happens with Mary and Martha, that basically Martha is complaining that Mary, who's caught up in worship, is useless. And a woman named Martha welcomed him, Jesus, into her house, and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet 
and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Saying, look, it's not all about productivity. Some of us are so focused, maybe even on what we can achieve for the Lord, that we forget rather that what Christ wants most of all is our hearts, our affection, our devotion, our worship. Well, and the other way this just clashes with our culture is worship requires you to slow down. I think about uh, Psalm 27, which is a beautiful line. The psalmist says, One thing I ask from the Lord, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and seek him in his temple. Have you ever tried to gaze at something quickly? Have you ever tried to, I don't know, we're going to stop the car, right, five minutes gazing time, quickly, okay, done, move on. You can't, gazing is not something you can do quickly. Gazing is not a, you know, if any of you have got the, one of those people, really organised people who've got to divide your life into all sorts of little five, ten, fifteen minute chunks, I am not one of them, but if you were, you couldn't slot or make a little slot for gazing, because the whole point of gazing is you're lost in the thing you are adoring. Worship requires you to slow down requires you to stop. That's why the whole idea of Sabbath in the life of the people of Israel is not just stop working. We, we all like that bit. It's worship is, it's, the Sabbath is a day for worship. It's a day to say, look, we're going to stop from work because we want to gaze on the Lord's beauty. We cannot allow our lives to be so full and consumed by activity that we do not make time for the most precious of activities. So worship is deeply alien. It requires us to run against some of our cultural instincts. But I think the real reason that our worship often feels so meager, why so actually this idea that we could go into our room and just say, hallow be your name, that we'd be full of delight and devotion, why it feels so difficult for us, why is because we've forgotten God. We've forgotten the beautiful magnificence of who God is. Unless you feed your soul with a vision of the beauty and glory of the living God, you will, your heart will just grow dull. You will just feel no sense of desire, devotion, and affection towards him. That is the critical thing you need to, have, to be able to say with Christ, hallowed be your name. Graham Kendrick, a worship leader, I think, uh, said, the master key to worship is a revelation of the Lord in all his beauty. A man who, who, for a living, leads people in worship. We've got to listen to him on this subject. The master key for worship, the thing that will unlock worship in your heart, is a revelation of the Lord in all his beauty. Which means if you don't feel worship towards Christ, if you wake up in the morning and say, I just feel nothing, no desire for him, no affection, maybe the problem is that you don't see his beauty, that you don't see him in all his magnificence. And the problem is not that he's not beautiful. The problem is that you don't see it. So how do we see his beauty? Well, let's do one thing we can do, given that we're saying, hallowed be the name, hallowed be your name, is we can look at the names of God. Because the names of God are not incidental so most of you have names that mean very little, if that makes sense. You didn't choose your, your parents didn't choose your name because it meant something. The biblical idea is very different. Names mean something in the biblical understanding. And 
yeah, we won't go into that. <laughs> Andrew and I have a debate. I think it's important to name your children according to the meaning. And anyway, it doesn't matter. We'll leave that aside. Um, <laughs> I didn't, we don't know it. Sorry. Um, what do names tell us about the living God? No right of reply. Sorry. Um, I want to show you a few of the names that show us the character of the living God to remind you of his beauty. First one is Yahweh. You know, if you go to sing on a Sunday, it just rolls off the tongue. Do you remember that Yahweh means the I am that I am? The I am that I am. The all-sufficient one. The one who has existed forever and will exist and needs no one and nothing to sustain him. The great life, source of all life at the center of the universe. The unchanging one who's not shifted by our different, like unlike us, with our different changing emotional states, but is the I am that I am. The all-sufficient one, the source of all life, unchanging and consistent. El Shaddai, God Almighty, the one whose voice thunders over the world. I love this picture in Psalm 29 where you just get a glimpse of his magnificent glory, the power of the Lord's voice. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. So powerful that it is that same voice that spoke galaxies into existence. That created mountains and waterfalls and deserts and arctic circles and all sorts of things. That spoke 18,000 different species of butterfly into existence. 16,000 species of moths. I literally thought there was just one. <laughs> this is the voice that has the creative power. It's not a corner. We should get lose sight. This is the voice. <laughs> this is the voice. This is the voice that created galaxies and stars. This is another name that the Lord gives himself in Exodus 34. Jealous. He's jealous. He says, he looks at each one of you and says, I desire you. I desire your affections who blazes with burning jealousy for each one of you. Who says, I love you and I love you and I love you and you were made for me and I for you. (laughs) Or at least I will be the one who will satisfy your deepest longings. Who looks at each one of you with an individual jealousy. The Father And we spoke about this last week, who speaks of a father who loves us as he loves us as he loves us, who speaks to the deepest father hunger in each one of us, who runs out to meet us, wayward as we are, apt to run away from him, who runs out and embraces us, hugs us, kisses us, gives us that great privileges of sonship. Jehovah Rapha, God the healer. The one who wants to come in and enter into your life and restore and heal and to set right all that is broken and one day promises to come back and restore all things to bring all everything to everything right. And when you take all of these together, the great unchanging Yahweh, the God Almighty, the one who created the heavens and the earth just by speaking them into existence, the one who's jealous for you, the one, the Father who loves you, who desires you, who pursue, pursues you, 
who heals you, who longs to restore you and bring you into wholeness and healing. When you see that great vision of the living God, how can we not worship him? How can we not say with Christ, hallowed be your name? How can my heart remain cold to him? How can I ignore him when I see his magnificence and his glory? So what I want you to hear is Christ's call to pursue individual worship, to pursue a heart that that exalts, that magnifies, that glories, and has affection for Christ. If you say, my heart is cold, let me give you a few practical things you can do. First of all, gratitude. Gratitude is the way into worship. We start by giving thanks. And don't just go straight to the the spiritual stuff, the, the redemption of Christ on the cross. Start with every good gift in your life. Everything that you treasure, everything you value in your life, I think you can trace back to the hand of the Father who loves you, who gives every good gift into your life. Then you can thank him for your redemption. Then you can thank him for his ongoing work in your life, for his presence with you, for a love that is better than life. So start with gratitude. Second of all, pursue joy. If you want to understand worship, understand joy. The the Westminster Confession uh, says the chief end of man is to worship, is to glorify. The, chief, the man's chief end is to worship and enjoy God forever. It says the two are inextricably linked. It's one end. If you're worshiping him, you're enjoying him. If you're enjoying him, you're worshiping him. Pursue joy. Spend time with Christ to the point where he is the source of greatest joy in your life. That is my experience. I have lots of sources of joy. I have a wonderful family. I'm very grateful. I have a wonderful job, a great vocation, lots of things. But the great everlasting source of joy in my life is the person of Christ because his love is better than life. and Nothing is better than that. A love that will never run dry, a fountain that keeps on going. Pursue joy in Christ. And finally, fight to see the beauty of Christ. Our hearts are built for beauty. We love beauty. That's why some of you sophisticated culture Londoners that you are go to art galleries, and I have no experience of that that myself, but put, put whatever it is, you know that your heart is drawn towards beauty. I think the reason why our hearts are drawn towards beauty is because we're ultimately made to marvel at the beauty of the Lord. Do you believe that Christ is the most beautiful person who ever lived? If you don't, read the Gospels again. See his his truth-telling. See his wonderful, no sugar-coating, no manipulation, just truth with a capital T. Unvarnished truth. See, in a world of lies and manipulators, see the Christ who is truth. Peace. Think about how so many of us worry about what people think of us. See the radical peace and security that Christ has, that people can humiliate him and lie against him and slander him, and he just takes it. He knows he's coming back to judge the living and the dead. He's got no sense of insecurity, no sense of I need to prove myself to you, or you can't say that about me because I'm... No, he's fine. He's radically secure in a world that we're all of insecurity and love. Love, so loving that the people who are outcasts, the people who are moral retrobates, retrobates, that people everyone else looks down on, want us to be, be around Jesus. The aroma that he carries is draws them in. Let the aroma of Christ enthrall you again. <laughs> See his beauty.
So hear Christ's call to personal worship. Pursue worship as a personal discipline. Don't just view your time with the Lord in the Bible as a kind of information exercise, but as a heart exercise that you might say, hallowed be your name. But when we say this, it's not just got private implications, not just about our words even. If we say this, actually it, start, it should start to change our lives. Because the great truth of this idea, this passage, is it's not just about God. Sounds weird, doesn't it? Hallowed be your name. How could that be about anyone else except God? But what you've got to realize is, when he says hallowed be your name, it has personal implications. Why? Because we are carriers of the name of God. The second point I want to suggest to you is that this is a prayer of personal consecration, of personal holiness. When Christians say, hallowed be your name, holy be your name, we'd easily miss that we are carriers of Christ's name. And so when we say, hallowed be your name, we're saying, make us holy. Make us fit to carry your name. Make us a fitting display of your holiness to the world. Now, first thing you've got to, to, to get this, you've got to understand, you carry the name of Christ. If you are a Christian, his name is on you. I mean, literally, that's what Christian means, Christianus, that, that's what they're getting from. It's the idea of one who's a follower of Christ, saying you carry the name of Christ. You've been baptized into Christ. He is, you've effectively got the family name. You carry the family name with you. You are essentially, whenever you tell someone you're a Christian, whenever you're public about your faith, you are essentially saying, I am with him. I'm with Christ. He's, I'm with him. He's with me. And the problem is, <laughs> the problem is, the reason that, that has consequences, because it means the way you live your life, the way you bear that name, either has the potential to bring honor to that name or dishonor. And these, this actually idea is really all the way through the Bible. In the uh, third command, commandment in the Ten Commandments, um, the, the instruction is, do not take the name of God, do not take the name of the Lord in vain. And most of us think when we hear that command, not to swear, not to profane the Lord's name, not to say, oh my gee, or whatever. Actually, it's much bigger than that. I mean, that's included, I think, but it's much bigger than that. What it really means, the, the word take there, is not actually... Um, about speaking, it's about bearing, about carrying, it really means literally carrying. It says, do not carry this name lightly. Do not carry this name in vain. Do not basically attach the name of God to your life and then just dishonor him, then just act in it willy-nilly in any kind of way. It says, no, if you carry this great holy name, this great name of majesty, Yahweh, you know, the Jews don't even write the name, it's so significant to them. They don't write the full name, they... they such is the preciousness of this name. Your life should magnify that name that you carry. Your life should give glory, should, give, should live appropriately, should, give, should point to the glory and holiness of the name that you carry. It says, do not bear it hypocritically. Now, I just, this is a concept, by the way, but I think you will all get. Think about the way that some of you, if you were to go out tonight and go and go to a fancy dress party, or maybe last week at Halloween, and you wore a, a Nazi uniform, you would, if that photo then went on social media, some of you would lose your jobs. Many of you would lose your jobs because they would say, you are bringing the name of this company into disrepute because of what you've done. The same way that a footballer can bring the name of his club into disrepute by doing something really stupid on a Saturday night. Or the way some, they might, they might say uh, a certain 
Hollywood studio might not want to be associated with a, an actor because of something like an abuse in the past or something like that means they might, they cancelled um, the one that Kevin Spacey was in, you know, the uh, House of Cards. Uh, you know, they, they said, we don't want to be associated with this name because you're, by doing so, you will bring us into disrepute. You will, you will tarnish the name of this studio. You will tarnish the name of this club. So when we say, essentially we're saying that as a Christian, you bear the, say, the name of God. You carry a name which is far bigger than Manchester United or far bigger than MGM or whoever these people are that, that might be worried about you tarnishing their name. You carry the name above all names. You carry the name of Christ. You carry the name that one day, the name that every knee will bow have you understood the great privilege it means to carry the name of Christ? It says because you carry the name of Christ, your life is a comment on that name. Your, how you live tells people what you believe about that name. It means your life really is a question of displaying the character of God, of either bringing honor to the name, of building that name up so people go, wow, Christians are... This person, Christ, is really fascinating. I see that person. I see the love that he has. I see the compassion that he has. I want to know more about the God who he serves, whose, whose life he lives in, in the name of. Well, they see the other person. They say, I don't want to know what about that name, the name of the God that he believes in, because I've seen his life, and there's not, I don't want anything to do with him, with that God. You see this in, in um, Romans chapter 2. He describes how the people of Israel because of their lives, because of the way they dishonoured God, they blasphemed the name of God. You, you who boast in the law dishonour God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Saying because of your disobedience, the Gentiles are, are blaspheming, are kind of desecrating the name of God because of the way you have lived. So what does your life say about the God who has put his name on you? What does your life say about him? What does your life say about the name that you carry? You know, think, about, think about as a Christian, you're a mini Christ. We carry the name. Does the Christ, you know, is Christ patient or is he scornful of people who are less intelligent and less uh, quick than them? Is Christ committed to people or is he quick to disregard them? This, as people look at your life, they will make us understand, they're making a judgment about the person of Christ because you carry his name. Is Christ pure, or is he consumed by sexual lust? See, the, the way you live displays what you believe about the living God. Think about the dignity of the name that you carry. Think about that great privilege, and with great privilege comes great responsibility. That, you, that your life makes a statement about the God that you believe in. And you carry the holy name, so your life should be holy. That is the, the great message the people of Israel carried. They said, you worship a holy God, so you're a holy nation. And you display his holiness to a world that doesn't know him. They, you are their window into the character of God. The life that you live, the character you exude, the patience, the love, the joy, the peace, the kindness you show, or not will tell people about the God that you believe in. Now, as I say this, I suspect some of you will say, but what about when I failed? What about when I don't live up to this great vision of Christ? Well, you've got, first of all, you've got to realize that holiness is a gift. 
This is not something that we establish for ourselves in our own strength. This is something that Christ has put in us. Just as he's put his name on you, he's put his nature into you. He's put you, given you the gift of the Holy Spirit. You're a new creation. And so insofar as you feel a distance between the, the person of Christ and your own character, that is the reason why we get on our knees and say, hallowed be your name. May your name be hallowed by my life. Let the distance you feel between the holy God that you worship and your own life push you to your knees. That you say, God, I want to display your beauty. I need your spirit. I need you to change me, to change my heart, to remove that ego that I see so clearly, or whatever else it is that you see. And to say, God, I need to be the man that you called me to be. I need your spirit. I need your character just as I reflect your name. That's why you pray this each day. That's why you say, hallowed be your name. May I be holy to display your beauty, your glory, your magnificence, your character to a watching world. But this, I would suggest, goes even further than just our own personal holiness. This is, thirdly, a petition for the glory of Christ's name. This is not just a personal statement of worship, hallowed be your name. This is actually a desire, a petition for the glory of Christ's name. It's almost like he's saying, may your name be hallowed. May your name be glorified. May your name be venerated across the world. Once you see the, the magnificence of Christ, the glory of Christ, once you see him as the great source of all life, as, as the, the perfect image that he is, you say, he can't just be a private, personal deity. He cannot just be my, it's not just my treasure, I want him to be the treasure of the world. I want the whole world to see his magnificence and his glory. May your name be hallowed throughout the world. The Christian cannot be content with merely worshipping Christ themselves. There is actually a right sense of holy discontent, the sense of, I have seen your glory, I have seen your beauty, and it's such a beauty, it's such a glorious beauty that I, it, it can't just be for us. I want the whole world to see your beauty, to see this. In fact, that's why every human being was made as an image of God, made in the image of God, made as a, a mirror made as a, a, a pointer, so to speak, intended to be an image of the great, glorious, living God. That is our purpose as human beings, to reflect the glory of God. What a tragedy that the great Lord of all, whose name is above all every name, who every knee will bow before him, that some, many in our culture, their only understanding, their only connection with this name is using his name as a curse word. Sometimes they don't even know why, why in our culture is Jesus Christ uses a curse word when for some, they, they have no, it's almost like, why, why are we using this name? Isn't that, isn't that fascinating in and of itself? Their only touching point with this great name is to use it to curse when things go wrong. What a tragedy that the name above all names is being used in that way. And as Christians, we say, Christ, your name is so valuable, so precious, so glorious. I want everyone to see and marvel at your beauty and your majesty. Just imagine for a moment a, a village. There's a town somewhere and there's a great glorious tree at the center of that kind of a green, a common. And that great tree causes uh, shade for the people in the summer. And it, it 
great bountiful harvest of fruit at its hands and, and, uh, and, and firewood in the winter. And it's kind of like, in many ways, the source of life in that village. They rely on it for all sorts of things. But all the people in the village, or many of the people in the village, don't know it's there. Or they, don't, they can't see it. They, can, they enjoy the fruit, they enjoy the firewood, they enjoy its shade and its covering for them. But they're kind of walking around, just saying, oh, these are great, these are good things. But they have no reference to the great tree that is providing life. It's an analogy, forgive me. You know, it's not perfect. But my point is, that is something of the picture here. This great, glorious king is providing the breath in their lungs, the food that they eat. He made them. He is the source of all life and he is the reason they were made to worship and enjoy him and they don't know him. They can't see him. They don't know his goodness. We as Christians want to say, there's something wrong with that. There's a holy discontent for the glory of Christ's name such that we say, hallowed be your name. Lord, I want others to worship you. This, by the way, this desire for the worship of Christ's name, for his glory and fame, is why some of us will do stupid things. Some of us will move across this city and they'll uproot our whole lives to go and plant a church in another part of the city. Some of us will go to another country and, and do the same thing. We will make decisions like that. Decisions that people around us will say, why are you doing this? Why are you uprooting your life to go somewhere else or to do that? Because we are so desirous of the glory of Christ that people would recognize and worship him that we are willing to make all sorts of sacrificial decisions. Mission exists because worship doesn't. Until we see, we we long for the glory of Christ. And so we want his name to be made famous. So we are those who cry out, hallowed be your name. We long for the day when the whole earth will erupt in praise. You know, this great and glorious vision in Philippians of Christ's glory and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is the praise that Christ's name deserves, that every tongue would confess his glory. And so we cry out saying, Lord, would your name be hallowed? We join in with creation and we long for every voice in the universe to come together in a moment of praise and worship to recognize the glory of the King that we serve. So hear this great call to worship from Christ. Hear this invitation, he says, when you go and pray, say, hallowed be your name. Hear the call to individual devotion. Hear his call for you to make much of him in your own heart, to cultivate an affection and desire for him. Hear the call for holiness, that you say, hallowed be your name. Lord, may I display your holy, your beauty to the world around me. And then we hear that call to say, hallowed be your name. Lord, we want your name to be made famous. We want everyone around us to see your glory and majesty. That is the invitation. And it starts with a recognition that Christ is the name above all names. There is no other name on which men can be saved. But his is the name above all names. And he is worthy of worship. He is the most beautiful Thing, if I can say that, at the centre of the universe that we were made to praise. Should we start there? We start by responding in worship 
Before we get to corporate worship, we start with individual worship. We start by a moment of just giving us a moment of response, really, to be able to, to process this with the Lord. <laughs> to say, God, I want, I want to want you. <laughs> I want to see your beauty again. I want to lift up your glory and your magnificence in my heart. I want to love you. Start there. I want to see your holiness, and I want to display that holiness in the world. I'm going to pray. The band are going to come up. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we say again that you have such a beautiful name. Your name literally means God saves. And we're so grateful for that saving that you've done in our lives. The way you've opened up our eyes to see your marvelous life. <laughs> to see your beauty. To see your character. To see your majesty. Lord, we just accept now that our hearts are fickle. That we do not love you in the way that we should. Or we have not loved you in the way that we should. We want to come now, Lord, and to see your glory and your beauty again. We want to come and taste your goodness. We want to come and make much of you in our hearts. Lord, we've forgotten that we are the carriers of this name that we in some way have a job to do, to show people your holiness, to display your beauty. Lord, we want to commit ourselves again to be people who display your beauty to the people around us. And so we say, come Holy Spirit, shape us. Come Holy Spirit, change our hearts, change our, our desires, change our affections, that we might show people your heart. And we want to be people who, who long for your name, who long for your fame, who desire with you that all people would say, hallowed be your name. So we say together, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name in this place and in our whole world. Amen.